So today on the podcast, we have Mr. Blake Ewing. Blake is the uh, concept designer behind Sonospheres 1 through 4, film composer and musical extraordinaire. So I wanted to start, I was looking at your website and you say, by historical standards, I suppose I was a latecomer to the world of music. At 16, I taught myself to play the piano by reading an old set of world book encyclopedias. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's awesome of course. to hang out with you guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah. So I never really, you know, when growing up, I never like took lessons or anything like that. You know, when I was a kid, I don't really remember music being a super important part of, you know, like family life or anything like some people have when they're growing up. But I got, I think my mom like bought a used piano maybe or something we had around the house and it was just sitting there. So I kind of got curious about, you know, like what's this do? Absolutely. And so we had, you know, like a lot of people back then, this would have been, I guess, early nineties, we had a set of encyclopedias. So I just like went to the piece and looked up piano and kind of was trying to figure out, you know, what do the white keys do? What are the black keys for? And, you know, that just kind of led me to, you know, what's a scale, what are the key, you know, what are the the musical keys? And yeah, so it just kind of went from there. Like one article would lead me to another. It was like the pre-internet rabbit hole, basically. That's fantastic. I remember, I remember when I was a kid reading encyclopedias and being fascinated by them. And that, you know, that's pre-internet. So it's like yeah. that all the knowledge that we had was in the yeah. next update of encyclopedias. It was kind of like, you know, now you would go to YouTube. Yeah, do what I was doing, you know, with with the physical book. But I mean, it was the same principle, you know, just trying to find a how to, you know, to to approach this instrument that's now in your living room. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of where where it kicked off. And and I think, yeah, I was about 16, I guess, when that happened. Okay, so you taught yourself to play piano and then it looks like you started writing. You kind of learned to write some music. And then how what was the next step? How did you get to composing for media well yeah you know like as soon as i started to kind of be able to make a tune you know with with the keyboard i i guess i wasn't super interested in playing other people's music you know from the start i was more interested in in sort of creating my own melodies and and trying to learn how to to write them down so in a way i guess learning the piano was was kind of just the method to get me to be you know being able to kind of get the ideas on on the some form of paper you know yeah uh so yeah the next step i guess i don't know i remember seeing the movie apollo 13 you guys remember that movie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't remember what year that was i guess it was maybe like 95 or something and uh i was in the theater and before this i had never really paid attention to you know the, the there's a soundtrack here you know with the exception of maybe like star wars or something and uh, i just remember being very moved by the music of that movie and thinking, wow, you know, that's something people actually write, <laughs> you know, and, and and that's their job. So I guess that was a, kind of the the spark that led to that being an interest. There's playing a piano and writing a melody or writing a song. But then there's also this other dimension of contributing that music to a, a larger art form, film and and thing, just visual media in general. And so, you know, that I guess that was kind of the start of me being interested in in that whole side of things. That's awesome. We were just talking last episode about how I had a very similar experience with Avatar. So mm-hmm. both both movies are James Horner. Yeah. So 
He's a he's a great composer. All over the place back back in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it clicks. You know, like there's that certain time where it, you kind of have that click moment of, oh, people do this for a living. <laughs> yeah, and you know that I guess that wasn't even the first thought. The first thought for me was just like on a, like an emotional level. You know, like wow, this is really moving. You know, mm-hmm. like and with the imagery, there's just something about that to me at least that it's hard to replicate with either by themselves, you know, with just the visual or just the music. But when you put them together, there's just something magical about that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it works. It like really, really works. That's how I feel about the the Joker score. Cause I, when I was listening to some of the tracks that they put out before I saw the movie, I was like, Oh, okay. This sounds pretty, pretty dark and moody. But then once I saw the movie and heard the music, I was just like completely drawn in. And then going back and listening to the score by itself, it almost makes you now appreciate it because you know sort of like what scenes were going on when you hear the music and it really kind of like makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it was like at first out of context was like, this sounds cool, but all right, you know, wait and see it with the movie. And then once you see it, it's just like everything just like, then you can appreciate it more right. sort of on its own. But yeah. You know, the same thing with uh, the same composer, uh, it's Hildur Good- Goodness Doubter, I think is how you say her name. Um, but she did Chernobyl. I don't know. Did mm-hmm. you guys watch that series? HBO, yeah. yeah. Same thing. The music there was just absolutely haunting and uh, almost more of a sound design than, yeah. you know, a more traditional melodic score. But like when you put it with the, with the visuals, it was just amazing. Yeah, it was really cool. It was powerful. So who are some artists that inspired you and helped shape your style? Oh, you know, I guess like, James Horner probably would have been one early on totally. um, since that was kind of my introduction to that style of music. But I think, you know, probably I, I am more maybe influenced by more classical musicians than, you know, than soundtrack composers. Um, yeah. And it can be radio hits too, like pop top 40. Yeah. I don't know. You know, like I try not to listen to music that is similar to what I write just because I don't want to, accidentally you know kind of mimic someone someone else's music sure but yeah i find you know like i find inspiration all over the place you know from r&b to like we you know we kind of talked a little bit before we started about classic rock and things and i just like anyone that is um kind of pushing the boundaries of whatever it is they're doing you know i I like the idea of genre bending music you know Mm -hmm. that doesn't fit neatly necessarily into one genre or another but yeah, I guess initially classical composers like uh, Aaron Copland, Ravel, Debussy, the Impressionistic, those guys were Absolutely, really yeah. influential on me. I was a kind of a choir nerd okay. uh, in high, late high school and college. So, you know, Duraflay and uh, Morton Lawrence and those types of guys, their harmonies and just the way they approached, you know, the harmonic structure of, of the music, I think influenced a lot of the way, you know, the ways that I write and the sort of tapping into the emotions they tapped into, I think is something that kind of inspired the way that I write things. Absolutely. I can hear that. I can hear that for sure. And like the way they use tension between like half steps and things like that, uh, dissonant chords that resolve, I can definitely hear it. Yeah. What's a, what's an artist who you, like, if you were to say like an artist who really sort of like made you change into going into the style that you do now who would you say is probably like the biggest influence that really sort of like took you down the path of like 
sort of what you're doing now? Oh, you know, I don't know because I, I I've never, I, I don't think it was like in, in a way I wasn't starting off, you know, as a, as a rock musician and then sort of transition to this. I mean, I think this is kind of just who I've been the whole time. Mm-hmm. So I guess it would be the same, the same people I just named, you know, in a way, because that, that's, I mean, you know, my music, I think, I hope has evolved since I started, but I don't think there was any like one particular person in the midst of me already creating that I was just like, oh, well, I think I want to do that now. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah, I guess um, just those same classical guys that kind of inspired me to begin with, you know, maybe maybe as I go along, I you know, I just try to to get better and better at that craft and, and maybe it translates into something that sounds maybe a bit different but mm-hmm. you know in my mind it's it's just a, a an evolution of that same goal yeah is, is piano still your primary yeah i um i pl- i dabble with guitar i'm not by any stretch of the imagination a guitarist but i love texture which i guess you guys can tell from from the libraries and if you've heard any of my music that's a, a big part of it and so there's something magical about textures that you can get with a guitar that you can't really get with a piano. Um, they are different yeah. natural state. So yeah, I dabble with that, but yeah, usually like when, when it comes to writing new music, usually it starts at the piano unless it starts with just like a texture, you know, or just an inspiring sound like a pad or something, you know, but mm. yeah, if it's melodic, it usually starts with, with the piano. When did you start getting into sound design and and starting to sort of like take organic instruments and modify them in a way that, you know, that maybe you weren't hearing in in other libraries or like what point was it that you sort of started doing that, like kind of mangling organic sounds? I don't know. Within I think within the last like maybe 10 years, I started getting more interested in just the, the sonic textures that you can make from existing material whether that's something you've recorded or, you know, a sample or, or whatever. And um, I don't, I don't know how that happened or why it happened. I, I there's just something about sound in general that like really interests me. You know, I'm, I'm kind of always on the listen for, for interesting sounds. And, and are you guys into ASMR? Have you heard of that at all? Yeah. I'm familiar yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah so like I'm really I'm highly affected by that, you know, whatever that is in, in the brain that triggers that feeling in, you know, physically. And so I don't know if that has any relation to me being interested in texture or whatever, but I feel like it kind of, you know, would make sense if it did. But yeah, I don't know, uh, Craig, why I or how I started that. I just um, I think it was just kind of the next it was like the natural step to just, you know, like you let's say you've played the same five notes over and over and now you want to learn some new notes and i think that was yeah kind of my idea oh i think there's something that's like a, a, a fun thing like when you start getting into audio or audio production and like learning how to record recording just like a guitar track and then just wanting to like oh what if, you know then you start getting into like eqing and processing it and then you just you get to the point where you start like really wanting to take stuff forward or like stretching out samples reversing samples processing them and then you know so it's like it's it's really it's a really fun process i think to to see how far you can take sounds and I, like with the sonospheres 4 stuff that you just uh, that we just released like it's probably my favorite i love all of them but i think that's the one that like all 
so many of those sounds just like you just start getting ideas from it. Like I really wanted to like pick your brain as far as like your approach with this one. I really like to talk with you about the whole series and sort of like where where you wanted to go with it. But for Sonospheres 4, what was the, uh, the intention behind the library and and what you wanted to, to do with it, with this series in particular? Um, Let me just take a step back because I was just thinking of an analogy. Like, you know how if you're like, say, a, a world famous chef or like, a, you know, maybe you maybe you run a bakery. Well, you get sick of the thing that you make all the time. Right. The sweetness of the of the baked goods or whatever. And I think the the, the more you get into an art form, the more you want to push it outside of that sort of pretty boundary. You know what I mean? Like the the melodies that you write when you first start are like, you know, very syrupy and like leah's theme from star wars or something you know but like the more you get into it you want to get deeper and deeper and and like i really love dissonance like i just think there's a beauty in that that you can't get from you know just a a simple melody i mean i love simple melodies too but like i you know it's a spice that you can grab and and use that maybe you didn't even know about when you first started and so i think that kind of ties into my approach to sound design is is to sort of push those limits a little bit into territory that might not may not even be comfortable at first but is outside of your your normal boundaries Mm -hmm. lead to you know really really wonderful discoveries so anyway that's a little off topic i guess as far as sonospheres four but um real quick um mike's ready to come in bring him in hey mike (laughs) hi blake how are you good good to finally see you yeah We've talked a few times, but I don't think we've ever video chatted from the future like this. Yeah. Now we are in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just talking about uh, the ideas behind sonospheres, spreading your wings a little bit on the sound design and kind of stretching the boundaries of what you do. And he was telling us all about sonospheres four and some analogies of baking the same thing over and over and how it gets boring. So you try to do something else. We're definitely craftsmen. I, I think of myself yeah. as a craftsman more than an artist. So it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think of it this way, because like this is how we approach all of our instruments, I think, in a grand sense. So if you say you have a toolbox in your garage, you know, the worst thing in the fucking world is when you have 10 of the same screwdriver, but not any of the one you need. <laughs> Or like, you know, when you get those little Allen wrenches from Ikea and you got 50 of them, but you need the size just one smaller than that. And it's Mm -hmm. in the same pile. So I think what's excellent about this fourth Sonospheres is that there are a lot you can do with pads. You can even make them very percussive and pulsy by shaping the ADSR and the user interface. But you, what, what we really need is things that have definition and edge and kind of bite to them or percussive you know, quasi-percussive aspects or absolutely percussive aspects. And so I think what's great about four is it keeps the same kind of dreamy, atmospheric feeling, but um, provides the tools to finish the compositions that you can kind of shape with the earlier sonospheres. I mean, I think it's always been our ideal to make every library be fully self-contained. So you could create a full composition by using nothing but it. Because I think that's that's kind of the idea is that like, if I only have 50 bucks to spend on a library, you know, if I'm looking for a new piece of inspiration, I want every everything I can get out of that that investment. 
and I want it to, to be useful in a lot of different ways forever, not just the one trick pony I might need it for. So I think that's what, what this library is really bringing to the Sonospheres collection is, is to round it out, to, to allow that, those other elements that allow definition in a composition to, to bring all of it together and to tie it into one piece. Yeah, and I think of each volume as like a different toolkit or a different box of colored pencils. It's like, oh, I'm grabbing this box of colored pencils because I want to use these colors today. In regards to to the field kits, what were you recording for that? Like what made you want to record that set of sounds as far as adding that uh, percussive element to the library? Yeah, I I love, um, and in a lot of my songs, I use a lot of little ticky ticky sounds, you know, that just kind of help move, move the rhythm along. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of times you, you, I mean, you can hear them, but they're not, you know, the focus, they're just there to kind of help with the feeling. And so I, um, I thought it would be cool to like make those from field recordings, you know, of, of like um, walking through a Japanese tea garden or, um, you know, visiting a, a space and rocket center, you know, just so, something that's kind of out of left field, but maybe there's a story there or, you know, just interesting sounds. And, and Mike, I know you guys have done a lot of this, you know, I'm thinking like your, your glass beach uh, library and things like that, where you take, just recording it and make them into, um, you know, an instrument that that you never would have imagined they could be. And I, I don't know, there's something really cool about that, I think. And I thought, you know, with a sound like that, it's I guess it's just much easier to make them a percussive instrument than, you know, anything else. So that's kind of where the idea came from. Yeah, I mean, I think the most innate impulse of somebody who's into sound, whether they're, you know, a kid or an adult, when they first start kind of realizing that they're fascinated by it is when you just knock on something that, you know, like a metal handrail as you're walking down the stairs or something and you realize how musical it is. And then you hit the next one and it's a different note. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're almost impelled maybe to run back and forth and play a little melody. Take a stick. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, essentially the lamellophone is that most innate concept of a playable object or part of the world. I mean, people used to do it with logs and, trees and rocks or anything that could resonate i mean that's really that and wind through reeds and our own voices are and birds are what pulled us to music from from just them being you know simple communication tools and i'm sure in that way music probably helped create the concept of language that we know now over kind of a co-evolution of the two yeah i don't know that's just my, my sense of it but what i i think about like what you said, when you're in a space center and you think that, I mean, sure, if you if you hear some interesting, I don't know, piece of machinery that's running in the background and you record it, yes, you could find, in theory, a machine that sounds similar to that somewhere else. But somehow that's not what it is that you're capturing mm -hmm. entirely. It's the why and the where and the how. Yeah. It, it's the whole ghost of the moment and the place and the time and you and the people there. and you're capturing a piece of time mm -hmm. and space and you're and in the only i mean i mean video in a way can capture it but not so i mean with sound you're capturing the kinetic moment not just the photons but all of the energy in a sense um in in, in its interactions with the environment as much as we can at least and giving a person the ability to put themselves there as best we can 
So I think, yeah, when you take source recordings from a location, like an adventure that you go on, it also shapes how you, what you do with the sound afterward too, the sound design or how you present it. And I think in a way, that's why where sound is recorded matters. That's why a place, like a piano in a church, isn't just a piano in a church. It's one thing. The in, you know, or like the reason every pipe organ is special is because the whole building is the instrument. And in, a, in the same way, when you're, when you're doing field recordings as a basis to create an instrument, in that sense, you're trying to create an instrument that is a playable moment, a feeling, an aesthetic. And I mean, the entire Sonosphere series has really been about that, is about just taking pure textural aesthetics or instruments and like the most intense form of them, like recording a piano in, in such a thuddy, noisy way where it feels like you're, you're the hammer, you're the felt. Mm -hmm. That's that feeling of like the intensity that you can't even experience in real life. There's no way to physically get down and play a piano while your head's also on the hammer, you know, on at the hammers to feel like that's the point of, of aesthetic recording and sampling. It, okay, now everybody sampled all the basic instruments, but they haven't sampled the feelings that really people are trying to get at when they do create, when they do compose. They're not just looking for a piano to play this. I mean, that's, I guess, the old paradigm. Like, Here's my strings. Here's my brass. Here's my voice. You know, here's what what we're getting at now is like that's not what we're chasing in music. We're chasing deeper feelings than just simply rep mathematical representations of form and function. We're aiming at what music really pulls at us, which is that emotional draw, that that you know, that feeling, that frisson that goes up the back of your spine and into your head that you feel that music moving inside you. And that, I think, really demands more than just musical structure, but texture and feeling and place and time in ways that make us feel that it actually matters or that it actually represents a, a train of thought or a, a sense of place and time. I think in a way, what's drawn me personally the most to music like yours, Blake, sort of hybrid, symphonic, electronic, atmospheric, I don't know what it is. Yeah, modern modern classical. Modern classical, yeah. Term for Which it, yeah. sounds to me, I mean, like, when is modern? Because I thought that was what was described to, like, the music in the 30s. Yeah, that was modern like, modern for its time. And then, yeah, like, or like, constant the 40s evolving 50s, modern. Like, yeah, like John Cage or whatever. Like, yeah. what it is now is a fusion of all of the technologies that we have and, and are now more than I think in the in art in the past, we are in touch with our emotional and sort of more spiritual, but in that raw sense, not in the liturgical sense, in that non-strict, non non-formal religious sense, that, that pure spiritual and emotional kind of connection to music and art that people now have that I think in the past was sort of taboo in a weird way. And, and I think it can new like modern classical fuses all of that the synthesizers all the things that that really are only important because they they speak to an aesthetic a feeling that goes beyond just musical and, mm. and gets more into into personal and yeah. gives people that thing that they can latch on to that um, the part that allows them to see a mirror of themselves in it to say to relate to the music in the moment that they're hearing it more than other kinds of music have a very limited way that you can personally interface with them when you're listening to it if you know what i mean yeah. if it's too to 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 form like say old 1950s doo-wop like you kind of have to be thinking doo-wop feeling doo-wop that's i mean you can use it ironically in a movie like say over a war movie like doing a low strafing run and listening to doo-wop music because it establishes a either an aesthetic of i don't care we're just having fun or 
this is a, a film about war in the you know 50s and 60s. Like it's the it could be those two things, but it, at the same time, there's something more organic about modern orchestral that kind of fits way more mood space. You can be in almost any mood to a degree, except the kind of oh, I don't know. My wife doesn't like driving to it because she <laughs> she kind of gets a little sleepy. But me, I mean, I think it's invigorating. Yeah, you know, it is. It's very flexible. I think you know because you have a lot of people I think who listen to music like. I create in the background strictly, you know, which I guess in a way is, is always been what classical music, you know, Mozart's writing for rich people to, you know, have this uh, party and music to, to and dance out. in the background yeah. or whatever, you know, so it's not always in concert format, but I think maybe what's different now is that because there is so much music in it and it has become so specific, you have so many artists doing something that basically only they do i think you can have these sort of hyper fans is not the right word but the, you know there's a very particular set of people who like just really resonate with what you're creating and only what you're creating or only in a way that you could create it and i think that may be different from in the past so you have this range of people you know some who maybe aren't even really actively listening you know they just have it on in the background all the way up the spectrum to someone who's like I can't believe this music was written. This is exactly the type of thing that I didn't realize I needed in my life, you know, yeah. to feel a certain way, or I didn't know this existed until I heard the song. And so I think that is a different moment that we're in now, whether that's, you know, just through technology or access or, you know, just the sheer number of songs that are released every day. But yeah, Mike, I think you're right. Like there's, there's, I think there's an authenticity. Maybe that's the word that music has now that maybe it hasn't always had or, you know, has had more sporadically. I think yeah. in a way it's because music has become so pervasive, uh, independent music. I mean, it, it's like, because there are probably a million songs released a day now in some form. I mean, obviously of all different qualities from just like really simple, you know, just amateurs to pros, but say there's probably a million songs re released every day in a way it's terrifying if you're a musician in that, oh, well, how will I cut through the noise? But at the same time, there are billions of people who are now consumers of music mm -hmm. who are seeking their own way toward what resonates with them. And so it's there is an audience for you and you can reach them now. And so it's like really the goal is to really shape your sound and, and what you are trying to express. And that's an emotional, personal thing. That's not I mean, people still musicians often still do kind of mimic things that that they've heard that's just human nature but at the same time in order to find an audience they often need to craft a distinct way of expressing what they're doing so that it doesn't just sound like a copycat because people do you know they they only have so many hours in the day they're not going to listen to literal mirror images of the same music i mean so I, I think that gives this opportunity to composers to be more unique strike out on their own and be more personal because it's not so rigid now it's a whole cloud of audience and a whole cloud of composers and i mean i, I use composer loosely that can literally just be somebody with a, a copy of fl studio and just themselves and like whatever you know since come stock with it like yeah. you know they don't buy a single other thing in their life they can still do so much musically that you know before just a few years ago wasn't just not simply possible so it's it's like um it's definitely a strange time we're in but it, it allows for these 
brilliantly you know mixed forms of music because we all have grown up now listening to all kinds of genres as musicians i think i don't know any musician that doesn't have just a whole bunch of different genres they're into and also has a very difficult time expressing what it is that they would consider themselves as far as genre wise like, yeah. well it's sort of depends like on what i'm doing so people are using all kinds of different instruments using all that to create you know either songs that mix genres together but with the the perfectly like the iconic example being you know hip-hop and symphonic or hip-hop and um literally anything else where you have a break beat and a strong bass line underpinning a smooth sweeping like melody line that kind of fusion of forms and all different kinds on top of that like say you have like balkan music you know folk music merged on top of like symphonic music or um rock or anything like think of all these different like it's like a band like Devochka or something like that where you you can you can just like smash together different genres freely and and you'll find an audience who just was looking for like you said just that perfect mm -hmm. what they they didn't know they wanted you yeah know? and it's right there and it just hits the spot musically like if you build it they will come you know yeah, yeah exactly yeah and I think that has to happen naturally, though, within the artist, you know, because if you set out to do that, it usually doesn't work. You know, like today I'm going to write a hip hop track with rock elements, you know, like it, it's got to be innate, I think, to the to yeah. the um, to like the a genuine, like a genuine, like want to create that thing. And yeah, or yeah. it just happens. You know, I think yeah. that yeah. with me, at least that's the way it works It's just, um, you know, I get to the end of the song and a lot of times I'm like, I don't know how I got here, but I like it, yeah. <laughs> you know uh because this is just little magical moments happen as you're going through the process and i think if you i'm not saying you can't set out with a goal and it work but for me at least i, I feel like i i kind of need to go with the flow of wherever it's taking me you know and that includes my history as a listener yeah because i think that's the that's the thing about music is like if as long as there's like a genuine uh want to create something not just oh i'm going to try to do this because this is kind of like what i think is going to sell a million records yeah. but like anyone like even like you know Billie eilish you know her and her brother just sat in a bedroom and just made this record just because they wanted to do it you know they had genuine interest he was interested in audio production and she was a singer and you know they collaborated and look at look what it did you know but you know they didn't probably set off to maybe do anything it just kind of that's just the way it happened and i think as long as there's a, like a genuine want to create something and not just do it for the sake of getting a hit i mean i'm sure there's a lot of people that get hits because they're trying to get hits, you know, there's that too, but there's a fine line there, you know, where you, you, you want to be authentic and you also want to reach, you know, the most amount of people you can uh, for various reasons, you know, to, for whatever it is, you know, you want to be famous or you want to be rich or whatever, you know, whatever yeah. the motivation for you is, but you know, there, there is always a line there where you have to kind of figure out the balance between making something that is real you know, to you and that you feel like other people can relate to, but also making something that somewhat relatable on a human level, or at least mm -hmm. that's kind of always been my goal is to, to write music that people can find comfort in or find, you know, something relatable about the feelings in it is something in them that they can, you know, sort of sync up to. So speaking of relatableness you did a film called we don't deserve dogs yeah. uh and i wanted to talk to you about how you get your music to feel so immersive it's very wide stereo you can hear things kind of going on in both ears and 
it really brings you into the movie. I watched the trailer on their their site, and um, it was fun. I'm not a dog person, but I still liked it. And how dare so, you? Oh yeah, sorry, so sorry. <laughs> but uh, do you have any like hacks, tips, things that you do to create a very wide, interesting mix? Well, first off, that that movie was. Um, you should if if you are a dog person, I feel like you should definitely watch it. It's it's a very rare documentary in that there's no commentary, there's no narration. It's just strictly uh, a global trek about uh, you know the the very special relationship that humans have with you know these animals <laughs> that basically evolved from wild you know wild animals and how today you know how that what that looks like and the the filmmakers um literally went to i want to say 12 countries and there are vignettes from each country about you know the special relationships between human and dog in those places uh, and it's not always sweet you know sometimes there are things that are troubling but um, yeah, I don't know. Tips and tricks. Um, I try to, you know, balance things in a in in a pan method. You know, like left to right, have everything have its its own space. I tend to. I don't know if these are tips and tricks or just common knowledge, but I I tend to put most lower frequencies right down the middle. So usually that means that I will um, on the master bus put a mid side EQ where you know, pretty much the sides are cut, depending on the material, maybe 80 to 120 hertz, um, so that most of that signal is coming straight up the middle. And in the similar vein, a lot of times I'll put a little bit of a high-pass shelf, or not a high-pass shelf, but a high shelf on the sides uh, only. Okay. Give them a little, maybe a little sparkle or something. Um, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't feel like I do anything, you know, extreme. Do you compose different parts for each side? Like, are you panning, uh, like, for instance, I heard like some violins or strings that were doing different things on the left than on the right, or like, do you double? Is there a go-to reverb that you use? As far as strings go, normally I will place them as if they were in front of me, you know, in a live scenario. So okay, left to right, you know, first violins to bass. That isn't always the case. Like with this film, there weren't a lot of strings other than cello. There are a few moments where I brought in more of a full uh, string sound, but it, it was very intimate. And uh, I hired a cellist to play a lot of the melodic parts. And, um, but when, you know, a lot of times there would be uh, more than one cello part at the same time. So in that scenario, mm -hmm. I basically treated the cello as a string quartet, you know, and, and spread them out in different parts of the left and right spectrum. But generally speaking, you know, it would be sort of a more traditional violins on the far left, you know, basses on the far right or, you know, on the right somewhere. Um, sure. But it's it's all situational. Uh, sometimes I do double, I guess, maybe this is what you're asking, like double tracking something. Is that what mm -hmm. you mean? Like where you have yeah. this information? Um, I think that's a useful technique, you know, to record something twice as closely as you can but there's a little difference there uh, i mean I, I don't think that's a a new technique by any stretch of the imagination and then pan them opposite there's a there's a certain special sauce to that that gives it i guess that sort of slightly out of phase relationship gives it um some width and, and depth that you can't get you know just by duplicating the the sound and, and just panning them yeah it's just or just having that 
kind of like putting a doubler effect on it. It's like, yeah, you can kind of yeah. mimic it maybe with some plugins, but there's something about just double tracking and just hard panning left and right that just will automatically kind of start to broaden the sound. Yeah, because you know, the plugins, I mean, they can add the the sort of phase relationship, but they can't add the inconsistency of the actual playing or the actual singing or whatever. The humanity. Yeah, yeah. The, the human element to it, I think, is, is really what gives it that life. I wonder if that, you know, because like evolutionarily speaking, maybe we gravitate towards hearing, you know, or we're maybe mentally we're used to hearing multiple people singing the same chant, you know, but they're none of it's never going to be in sync. And, you know, when you have three, four, 10 people, there's always going to be inconsistency between the, those individuals. So yeah. maybe it's hardwired to it, to like that or to get something from that. It's, it's that uncanny Valley. It's the, I mean, when we hear if, it, if it's too, too similar, every time we hear it, our brain doesn't can't process why it just sounds wrong. I mean, yeah. I think it's, it just seems it's probably somehow evolutionarily, but I, I don't know what, what would that be, be from? It just, our brains know it's fake somehow that, I mean, I think that's, that's what's driven. Like, that's why I think the sample libraries in the nineties were not, people just obviously knew they weren't good enough uh, of, you know, just one sample of everything kind of thing. You need to like the, the idea is it's gotta be nuanced. It's because musical expression is nuanced. It's the nuance that actually allows it to be that. I mean, it's like, I guess a way you could describe it would be in the way we record, you know, with, with bit quantization, say 24 bit, versus 32 bit things like that you get a lot more detail a lot more dynamic range to express sound well i mean with music in a way the ability to play in a more nuanced way i think really is what's necessary to convince the ear that it's having an emotional experience through that i mean i mean even with electronic music even with synthesizers it's still not like the best of it is never like that gridded out quantized stuff. I mean, even if it's something like Kraftwerk, they're still adding a lot of sort of like humanity to their their playing style. I mean, they still mm -hmm. they would still play it live. That's why people are drawn to analog synth too, because there's something imperfect about the oscillators there. You know, like it's it's just a a feeling that maybe you can't explain, but you you also can't really replicate digitally. Yeah. Yeah. When something's too clean. Or yeah, or just too rigid. It's not expressive either dynamically or temporally. You know, in terms of how we lead or or lag behind the beat, and and it's and to even just say that is is trivializing what it is to physically play along to a tempo where you're the one playing it, and you're just micro delays here and there, ways you play slightly differently, whatever instrument you're playing. I mean, it's as articulate as speaking once you're reasonably practiced, and when it comes to singing, most people can at least express their emotions singing so i think that's that's what it is it's like language to us it'd be like a robot voice we know a robot voice when we hear it you know if it's too yeah. rigid it's too yeah there's beauty in the imperfections i think if anything that's the beauty we're chasing that's the the, the refined bit that are we're drawn to it's not even the the rigid mathematical structure it's the deviations from that in ways that are meaningful that that we're drawn to in music i think so so yanking us yanking us back here uh blake Back yes. to We Don't Deserve Dogs. How did you get this gig? Well, the filmmakers reached out to me. They they um, had uh, they had done another documentary a, a few years before that. And uh, the composer they worked with on that one apparently had like a, another engagement and couldn't do this, this, uh, this movie. So they just started, I guess, listening to Spotify, trying to find someone they related to. Nice. 
And uh, yeah, they emailed me and said, you know, hey, we like what you're doing. Here's what we're doing. You know, are you interested? And so the process was basically, you know, I watched the film through a couple of times just to kind of see if it's something that, you know, I thought I could add to. Mm -hmm. which was a, for me, a requirement. I don't want to take away from someone else's work. And, uh, you know, they had tempted it. And so I was like, okay, well, are you married to this style? And I, um, I, I think I mocked up like, you know, a couple of different little one minute long scenes of the movie just to show them what my idea would be for it. And yeah. we were kind of on the same page and they liked it. So we just kind of went from there. So, yeah, it just kind of, I mean, it was, you know, just fell in my lap, basically. Uh, they were a dream to work with. I mean, you know, they, they had their ideas about what they wanted, but they were very much in in the dream world uh, for a composer of saying, you know, we want it, we want you to do what you do, which is sometimes rare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did they mention how they found your work or found you? I want to say they just, they, you know, were listening on Spotify. I think, I mean, I, it's been a couple of years now since we had that first conversation. So I, I don't remember exactly, but I think it was something like that. You know, they oh. just, I don't know how they stumbled across my music, but I mean, that, I think that's where it started. That's cool. They were auditioning maybe people that wrote in a certain style and uh, they were doing it sort of blindly, you know, just letting tracks play. And then, you know, like they would say, I, I like that one. I like that. One. And, and they kind of kept coming back around to, to songs that I had written. And so I guess um, there was something about my music that resonated with them or, or what they thought, you know, the, the movie could use. Yeah, that's cool. Because I've heard of that same kind of thing with uh, artists like Mimi Page, because she does a lot of her own music and puts it on Spotify. And um, she would just get hit up by people. Hey, I'm working on this movie. And I just heard your music and I loved it. And I think it would be great. So it's like, I, I think it's cool to hear sort of like how like when you get those kind of like cold emails. Yeah, I get a, I get a, a lot of times it's through uh, Musicbed, which is who I do all the sync licensing with. And so filmmakers who have you know, maybe had smaller projects and had, you know, maybe used my music for those or something. And now they want to take on something a bit more, you know, larger on in scale might reach out and say, you know, Hey, you know, I'm a fan of your music. We've used it a lot in, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, would you be interested in writing something custom for us? So a lot of times that happens, but yeah, this movie was more random than that. You know, as, as far as I know, they had never heard of me before. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to talk to you about Musicbed. So I I checked out your name and you have hundreds of tracks on there. Yep. And have you found a lot of success through Musicbed and would you recommend doing library music and licensing music that way to new composers? Musicbed is a rare animal because they are very very selective. I, mm -hmm. I want to say the last time I talked to them, they were only onboarding like less than point one percent of all submissions wow uh, they don't look at themselves as necessarily a library i don't okay. think in the traditional sense of like you know a um, royalty free type thing audio jungle kind of deal they, they look at themselves as representing artists you know who are creating i hate to use the word real music but like music that's not meant just for production purposes sure not just and totally that, stock yeah and marrying those artists with people who who need that relevant music. So, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I, I feel like, you know, if you feel like you're on a level that you could get into that specifically with them, I mean, it, it, it is very beneficial. I mean, it's been life-changing for me as far as just financially. Nice. Um, but if you're talking just a general music production libraries, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't really have experience in most of those. So it's hard for me to say. My general sense is that, you know, if you're good at, at cranking out music of a certain genre or th things that might work in a royalty free situation, then I, I do think there's money to be made there if that's, you know, your goal. Um, I don't know that it would be necessarily fulfilling as an artist, though. Uh, sure. So you'd have to kind of, I guess, weigh the, what your priorities are in that. But yeah, I've been very fortunate. I got in with Musicbed at the right time, and um, it was a good fit. They're very much about, you know, you you be you. Um, don't write to, toward a um, an ideal, you know, production or or. They'll spec. send you briefs or nothing like that. It's just like, no. all right, here you go. It's not a template, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, they they want they want the we talked about you know authenticity earlier that that's what they want they want people who are are doing their own thing but you know that they feel like could reach a a market with the you know visual media so yeah I mean sometimes I'll write music that you know it's tricky as a as an artist now you kind of have to be a brand in a way and um, sometimes I'll write some music that I'm like this is I feel like marketable from a you know, like I could see people wanting to use this in a in a production of some sort of visual media production, but I don't necessarily think that it would be, you know, the next thing in line maybe that should live on my Spotify page, you know, or my Apple Music page um, for the people that might, you know, be fans on there. That It might be a little bit too disjointed from, you know, maybe the average there. And so sometimes I'll create something that ends up in that zone and I'll still send that off to them to be licensed, but it won't necessarily make it onto, you know, the, the more general public sites. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, my intention to do that. It wasn't that I set out to write a production library necessarily or something in a specific genre. It just kind of ended up there. Sure. So what advice would you give up and coming composers who want to get into composing for media? Like people using Sonospheres 4, for example, what, what advice would you give them as far as growing an audience and growing a network of gigs? Mm. To the extent that you can build, you know, relationships with other people that are making that type of media, I think that that's always beneficial. If, if you're like brand new, just starting out, then I say, you know, say yes to everything you're offered. Yeah. Because there's always something to learn. Like, even if you fail at it miserably, you know, you'll, you'll learn what not to do. It gets more complicated, you know, it, it, the more you are in it, you know, because the, the opportunities are slimmer. And, um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, there's just so much music now um, mm -hmm. to stand out. It's, it's just, I mean, it's almost luck. I mean, I know no one wants to hear that, but it's, um, I guess my advice would be to, if you're just starting, build a foundation of skill and knowledge and inspiration from just all sources that you can find and, uh, you know, work on the craft as much as you can, whether that's just for yourself and practice or, you know, with, with others who are just starting out maybe on the visual side and, you know, who are sort of learning their craft as well i think that's a good partnership to have when you're first starting yeah totally i wish there were more like magic bullet answer but if it were easy everyone would do it you know that's <laughs> right well yeah. and there's nothing wrong with it being a hobby like music being a hobby or a part-time job like in you know in the olden days music was something you did at church or you did with your friends after work yeah i think a lot of people maybe forget that you know you don't it doesn't have to be a career, you know, it, it can be something that you enjoy and um, 
I think we try to monetize our hobbies too much now, you know, like, uh, and, and maybe there's, there's this sort of false sense of um, success, you know, with, with people that see these YouTubers and everyone, you know, live, live streaming, playing video games. Yeah. Content, you know, con- quote, quote, content creators, you know, making all this money, but you know, not everyone can do that. And, and if everyone is doing it, then, you know, there's just, no one's going to make a living at it. <laughs> you know, there's only so many people to watch. If everyone's making the content, there's no one left to watch it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's also like easy to forget that for a long time, it, a, a big part of our cultural ethos was were things like punk music and, and, and other counterculture forms of art where the idea wasn't that it'd be commercially huge, but that it expressed a purpose and a, and a point of view that was a personal one. And I think that that's really the commodification of music. I think the one it's like it could go both ways, you know, either it becomes so ubiquitous that we all feel free to make it. There's no pressure. It's just there for everybody like air or um, it becomes uh, monolithic and and sort of more extreme in its uh, sort of hierarchical structure. I, I don't know. I I feel like um, it's up to people to 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 see music as some way of expressing themselves yeah. and not feel like they need to get lost in it. Yeah, I think, you know, with any art form, I, I feel like if, if your motivation to get into it or to start doing it is to make money, then you probably have failed right out of the gate. Yeah. Um, and that's hard to maybe sometimes accept, you know, like if you're like, well, I really want to be a film composer, but, you know, I can't really do that and work, you know, like a 60 hour a week job. Like that's a tough thing, you know, and, and a lot of people have been there. I, I just feel like the, the most successful people that authenticity comes through, you know, like if you're in it for money, you're really, you're found out pretty quickly. Like, you know, like the, your music uh, just lacks something for, you know, like that, that maybe the, the other guys doesn't who's in it for the art of it. And, and I think the money will follow you know, the art, if you're in it for the right reason and you get better and better at your craft, I think if you're patient enough, then, you know, it will come around financially. That's the key word right there is patience. Yeah. I yeah. I think what, what it is that if you're purely in it for the money, you'll leave out something. You, you won't put it all on the table. You'll, you'll keep some of yourself back out of, I think perhaps fear of being either vulnerable. I feel like there have been say, for example, pop stars or rock stars that had very commercial beginnings, you know, that became huge on a big commercial sound. But in their later years, sort of as they drifted into obscurity, they became more experimental because they, you know, they could at that point. There was, you know, they were no longer chasing the dragon of fame, it seemed. They were more just chasing their own internal dragon. Yeah. Or it could be an example of where, you know, where there was evolution musically, I'm talking about. There could be other examples where the evolution musically could have just been purely because media found a, a band, loved what they were doing, and the band just evolved on its own, ignoring the attention, and that's how they would have wound up and media moved on. Like, I don't know, how, how do you examine a band like Pearl Jam, for example? Huge, one of the biggest bands in the world for a minute, yet to this day continues to make music and very different from their early music. And and just but seems to like I mean it's pretty clear they probably go on like the Grateful Dead in that they will just continue until they retire or pass on because 
they enjoy what they're doing musically. It seems it's not a just a I guess a job you could say for them. Yeah, yeah I always think of Radiohead. Like I, I feel yeah. like um, you know they they could have become the next U2, you know, but instead they they release Kid A. You know, like that's just um, I really admire people and bands that are willing to really push the genre they're in or or just ignore genre and and, and do whatever they want to do, you know, and hope Experiment. that they're yeah, especially when you have a hit record, there's so much writing on, all right, this next album is going to be a hit. And then they just go the complete opposite way. Like we're going to go even more experimental or weirder with yeah. just that, like, we, well, we're not doing it for them. And honestly, like, that's why whenever I see people talking about bands and they're like, oh, they should have did this on that album, or I really wish they didn't do it like that. Or it's like you either like you're playing it too safe or then you try to do something that's like way too new. Or just because you're generally like, this is where we want to go with our music. And then people are like giving you shit for it. And it's like, well, we're not writing it for you. Like, yeah, you're our fans. But at the end of the day, like the fans should respect the artists. And like, the, I like them because they do their thing. If you start yeah. judging bands by all, you know, it's like all of a sudden everyone's like a reviewer. It's like, well, then listen to something else, you know, or listen to the yeah. old records. Like I, I, I'm a big believer in just artists should just do their thing whether it like loses fans or gains fans, whatever, like just, you need to have like a genuine want to, to do whatever you're doing or else what's the point. I also feel like, I mean, and of course this is just my, my two cents, but I feel like um, an album should be a self-contained work of art to a degree, a, a coherent narrative of form. And a band might have a specific style or an artist might have a specific style that they're they're really consistent with. But at the same time, the album really should tell a story that you can distinguish audibly from another album they've released. You know, yeah. the, like, so when a band just recycles the same ideas over and over again, I think that that, you know, maybe it's to please fans and, and to, to capitalize on a, on a, a winning formula financially. But at the same time, it won't really be remembered. You know, each you know, people just kind of eventually just forget what what was on what album, whatever. Versus bands that really try to make a you know, first achieve that work of art, but then move on, evolve to something new for the next one. Uh, I think those are the ones that stand the test of time, where people actually remember album names and mm-hmm. and and consider them as their and their potential impact on society. Um, yeah, and again, I, that to me that comes back to that sort of the whole the whole theory of that authenticity. You know, I keep coming back to that word. I, I just feel like that's really important. And Craig, you know, you mentioned a long time ago, I think right before Mike got on, about Sonosphere's four being sort of your favorite of the of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard from a few people uh, privately about that as well. I think a lot of that comes from the recordings are very raw like it's it's very out of the box um that was my goal with this with this particular volume was to get out of the box you know one through three were based well one and two especially were based almost entirely on pre-existing samples um which were you know obviously beautifully recorded and then three i think i maybe dabbled with getting out of the box a little bit but four is entirely out of the box so I think there's a there's a humanity and an imperfection to it mm-hmm. that maybe touches on a lot of the things that we've been talking about here in the last you know few minutes about sort of that uncanny valley and 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 the the, the realism of the yeah. imperfection and you know the humanity in the in the samples. I, I think that that even if you don't realize it, I think that that's what a lot of people are relating to when they're 
you know, playing the, through these instruments and, and finding a connection there. Maybe they didn't have with some of the older ones. Yeah. Like there's really just like, cause like from the like felted pianos, it's like everyone loves a nice felted piano sound. Sure. It's just an automatic, like, you know, kind of cinematic getting the inspiration going. Yeah. But then like a lot of the string sounds just, there's something about, you know, when you hear like a boat, like, okay, if you listen to like orchestral music, they could just bow very constant over and over. But when you hear like those bows where like it kind of starts to, you know, lighten up a little bit or get a little squeaky or, you know, or just has this kind of like, I don't know what it is. I, it's, it's very hard to explain, but it's just like, I, f- I found that so many of the sounds from like the guitar to the strings, to the pianos, to even the vocals, yeah. where it just really starts to conjure up, you know, like when you're writing music and you have a single instrument that you're playing. And then as you're playing it, you're, there's like this like little thing in your head where you can start to like overlay it, like, a, like another instrument or sound or a melody, you start kind of oh, I can start to hear this on top of that. And I feel like so many of those sounds just like generate those ideas. And like when I was doing the walkthrough for that, like it, it ran a little bit longer, but it's just because as I'm, you know, playing through some of the sounds, I just kind of was like wanting to experiment, you know, it almost wanted to shut the camera off and just start recording, you know, <laughs> yeah. or like writing some music or something. Cause like those sounds are just, they're so inspiring and yeah, just beautiful work on that. I, mean, I really, I mean, I love hearing that. I'm glad that it's resonating because as I'm recording these samples, I, the way I work on it is like after every every time I manipulate a sample, I will sort of make my own little impromptu contact instrument with it just to play it and see if it works. You know, like, does it does it give me some feeling? Because that's ultimately the only things that make it into these libraries are, you know, things that I feel on an emotional level when I press the keys, you know, playing those samples. Or is it something I would use in my own productions? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I really got, you know, some goosebumps with this one uh, <laughs> uh, throughout the whole process. Yeah, And a lot of the imperfections you're talking about, we're, we're, which really is what it is, you know, when you mentioned the string instruments and uh, it's just because I don't know how to play cello, you know, <laughs> and I'm it's me bowing a cello. And there's there's, um, you know, if I'm trying to play a, a Bach uh, cello concerto, it's not going to work. But <laughs> right. if it's me playing a sample it's not so bad because that imperfection can give life to, you know, when spread across, you know, the other keys and in your own music, mm-hmm. it's not so bad. Um, and it does give that, that humanity. So it was, it was a fun experiment to, to go through a lot of these instruments where I'm not really, you know, uh, even halfway competent at playing them, but there's somehow there's just a magic in that when you, yeah. when, you when you, when you play them as samples. Yeah. Be- beginner's luck. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a favorite synthesizer right now? Um, I don't think so. I, you know, okay. like the, you know, all the Junos are sort of all the rage right now. I'm really interested in maybe getting the the new. Well, it's not new, but new to me. The um, sequential, the Oberheim. Uh, I think it's the OB6. Mm-hmm. Something really magical about that 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 I, I think I could use. Um, so I, I think that might be my next one. What what are the synthesizers that you used for the Sonospheres for for the for the synth aspects? Or if, of the or if it's a it's a secret recipe, you don't have to tell us. It's okay. No, it, it's all it's all the Juno based stuff. That's, oh, okay. You know, did you run it through pedal boards or VST chains? Like what was what was going on back there? Yeah, almost all the effects chains for the samples on this one, with the exception of a few reverbs, were all done through pedals. Cool. Yeah. I've been curating a nice little pedal board over the past couple of years. And I've, I've 
I don't feel like I've perfected it quite yet, but I'm getting really close to what I think of as my ideal sound. Nice. You've always had a, a knack for working guitar into your compositions. It's just fascinating to to follow the route, like in a you know, as a producer, as you're choosing the say the effects you want to use. I mean, that's a very personal thing for everybody in you know music who's you know when they're creating what they're they're finding what works for them. Guitarists are often the ones that become kind of like focused on the the, the ideal pedal board. Um, yeah. And I know early for me that was that was like a big thread that I kept pulling because there was just so many you know possibilities. But it's interesting to see that you use that in context of of production with like outside the guitar. I mean, I I I think that it's, it's pretty common now to do that. So I don't think I'm yeah. breaking any new ground. But I I really enjoy unusual effects on you know instruments you wouldn't necessarily expect them on. Um, yeah. I just mean in a way it's more challenging than say the convenience of like plugins, if you will. Like you're oh. you're essentially choosing to route audio out. Yes. You know, or in between, you know, the microphone and the recorder. It's sort of like you're committing in the way that analog tape, for example, um, sort of used to represent. You're committing what you're doing in an, in an un um, inalterable way. Well, it's it's alterable, but you know what I mean, like. Yeah. Um, normally, when sam with sampling, we're we, we're going straight from the mic right into the recorder through the best, cleanest preamps we can, using the mics that have the absolute lowest noise and highest dynamic range. And we're really trying to get no filter. Really trying to sort of represent a, the purest form along whatever you know sort of goal we're we're after. You know, unless it's something with a direct in or something. But where in something that's meant to be more uh, emotional, like Lusanospheres for you're going right from the goal, you know, right from the start for for that goal of like a, a shaped and presented point of view musically. And so it's using things that are destructive, like unbalanced signal chains and like uh, guitar pedals and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, you you and I talked uh, at sort of at the beginning of this whole process uh, of creating Sonospheres about how, you know, in a way we wanted it to represent what I was doing at, you know, at the time as an artist um, musically. And I think that, you know, that that's just what I do. You know, I, I, um, I like, I like that direct interface into something real and physical. Um, and more and more, I feel that way. You know, I, I didn't, you know, a lot of artists came up in an analog age where they, you know, were used to twisting knobs and, and having all these outboard gear and that's never been me, but like, I'm really sort of starting to, to gravitate toward that. Um, I think, uh, in a way, I, I have started to think of myself less as a composer and more as an artist. Um, and I think part of that is just getting outside of the computer and actually playing music versus, you know, looping it or, or writing it bit by bit, you know, like to, to sit down at a piano and actually play through a song, I think is a different experience than to go, go note by note in a DAW, you know, for example. And Mike, that's a good point about guitarists and their pedal boards. And I wonder... I've never really thought about it like this, but you know, are there any other instruments where you really are interfacing directly with effects, you know, like on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, like, I, I think that may be a, um, I mean, there, there, you can, I'd say number two in line would be like, uh, synth players where they use a lot of outboard right. gear, uh, vocalists. I mean, there's a tradition of, uh, of using effects, right. You know, kind of early on or, or different kinds of microphones. Uh, Mike Patton is a good example mm -hmm. where 
you know, use two mics taped together or something like that. Or, or, or other, I mean, there's tons of others. Um, I think guitars have a special relationship with that. You know, that it's yeah, very there's tied like a whole in with universe guitars. of products just for them that sort of caters to that way of thinking. Yeah, well, and because without the, those effects, they, they don't really have their sound, you know, and like that's the part of the fingerprint of their, you know, instrument. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. If they're thinking in those terms. So, it, yeah, yeah technologically, I, it has, there's a structure that if you look at it, like, so the, the guitar has an unbalanced, well, I mean, you know, essentially, it's just a, like a really basic either piezo or um, you know, electromagnet, like, and it's, it's, it's noisy, it's buzzy, almost, but like, it's, it's necessary with the sound of a guitar, you know, even with a humbucker pickup, like it's still, it's, it's very, a, a very different kind of, uh, of sound than say something that a microphone will hear. It's a very different kind of sound, um, even than like a contact mic or, or something like that. And it, and the signal path that it has is, you know, by definition, an unbalanced kind of like linear monopath. I mean, obviously there's stereo guitars and other things like that, but like for the most part, I mean, like the bulk of what the, you know, guitar users are working with, it's, it's, it's kind of like geared toward pedal boards and like a, a sequential, you know, um, sequence of effects that shape one finished sound on the, on the output stage. Um, and that with tons of different ways you can mess with in the middle. Yeah. I, I don't know why to me that's, it's interesting because in, in most other instruments, even with vocalists, you might use a couple of effects, but it's rare to go as nuts with it as guitars can, can and love to go on one sort of input source. I, I don't know why I'm weird like that. I just get, I geek out on like the, the hidden technical sort of like, landscape of music and how it really shapes how it ends up coming together and, and forms the archetypes in music that we've come to to know and love mm. see and I, I like the idea of other acoustic organic instrument sources being fed through that same signal chain i think there's a a real beauty in in that um you know like something like a transparent overdrive on on strings or or you know a piano even I don't know. There's, there's personally, there's just something about that I connect to. And I think, you know, pedals are an easy way to get there because they, like you said, you know, they're kind of made for that uh, from the beginning. And yeah. um, I, I don't know. I think it's a great thing to take advantage of, you know, from, from a production standpoint for trying on everything, you know, that's, that's one of the beautiful things about pedals is they're not that expensive mm -hmm. and you can, you know, to go back to our chef analogy, you can play around with all these different spices that you've never, you know, experienced before. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking of that same thing because uh, Misha from Periphery, he, uh, I've seen videos of them as they're making music. And that's what he would call it, spice racking. He would have like this wall of pedals. He's like, all right, so for this, we're going to spice rack it and, you know, pick a pedal, you know, for specific sounds and stuff like that. And so that's like, that's a perfect analogy, but uh, real quick, I wanted to ask what are, what are some of your favorite pedals that you like to use? What are the ones that lately you've been using a lot that are really uh, working for you? I love um, the um, Strymon Volante, which is uh, as close to, a, you know, like a, a space echo as I think you can get without actually using tape. I really like that. The, there's uh the shallow water uh by fairfield circuitry is a 
instant vibe. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically like you're running your signal through a cassette tape. Uh, I've just got the uh, um, hologram microcosm, which is like a little computer in a pedal box. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's like a granular synthesis pedal. Oh, wow. Um, that just anything you put through it is magical. So that you'll hear a lot of that one on my next album. Nice. <laughs> nice. Guarantee you that. Um, I guess those are, right now would probably be the ones that I'm like most excited about. That's I bought cool. some, uh, I bought like everything that's mono, I buy two of just so I can have a, a proper stereo chain. Yes. And um, I just bought some Klon clones, which uh, <laughs> are yeah. just everything I put through it. I just, I love. So I, I love, again, I love distortion on things you wouldn't necessarily expect to find it on. So you didn't yeah. want to buy the original one for like fifteen no, dollars you know, or whatever it is. And <laughs> <laughs> probably have to do work on them. Uh, I think I'll pass. Yeah. So where do you find um, a lot of the unusual uh, pedals? Do they get stocked in major retailers like uh, Guitar Center, or are they? Um, is there like a sort of like an underground community? I mean, like I I feel like, uh, and I don't like historically. I don't know if this is true, but I feel like just from the the general consensus around like YouTube reviews and stuff, they were kind of in a golden age of pedal making. It's almost like yeah. craft beer, you know. Like there's just so many independent companies that are you know like hand making these things all over yeah. the world. How do you find them? Through YouTube, a lot of times, you know, there's there's these sort of channels that that's all they do or you know like reviews of pedals and they'll just play you know like not even talk about them they'll just have them on the screen and play through you know synths or guitarists going through these pedals and you just kind of get a sense for what it might sound like word of mouth you know is another and and you know like the Strymon stuff is everywhere yeah. I and mean, you can buy that pretty much anywhere I, I, the fairfield circuitry one that i mentioned uh is probably a bit more hard to find i mean you could always go to directly to their website and buy it the microcosm is only sold through the maker. Like you have to order it directly from them. And they, they only make like a, a batch at a time every month. So you kind of have to pre-order it a few months in advance. I, I would think, uh, I mean, for weird microphones and instruments, I'll, I'll explore Etsy and things like that. Yeah. Just weird stuff. Cause a lot of times like people will have similar tastes or problems like in, you know, so like, Hey, or this microphone or this accessory, like, or this pedal, does this weird one thing that I, I really like and somebody, you know, you know, somebody's made it just to do that one thing. So I think that's, like you said, it's, it seems like we're in a bit of a golden age as far as options and yeah, e-commerce. So Blake, we've kept you a while. Uh, I have a few rapid fire questions for you and then we can close this out. Um, the first rapid fire question is a best recent purchase under a hundred dollars. Well, the Klon clones were under a hundred. I don't, I don't nice. know how that was, but which uh, one did you? Which one did you get? I mean, I, I don't even think it has a like a brand name on it. Okay, <laughs> I think basically some some little factory in China. You know, that's all they make. Maybe they're and, just knocking them off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Okay, next one is hobbies, interests outside of music can be anything. Lego, I love Lego. Interesting. Nice. Um, I have a seven-year-old son and it's been fun to kind of go back and, and get into that again because I was really into it as a kid. And then, uh, you know, as you grow up, you kind of lose touch with some of those things, but it's been fun to get back into that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, okay. Favorite YouTube channel, podcast, or TV show at the moment? Podcasts. 
I like hit, like things dealing with history. So like hardcore history is a good one. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, general news type podcast I listen to. Uh, I was really, really into true crime stuff, like during nice. the lockdown phase, but I've kind of gotten <laughs> out of that, I think. I still am. Me and my girlfriend watch this stuff all the time. Yeah. TV shows. Um, uh, I'm currently watching The White Lotus. I don't know if I'm obsessed with it, but that's the one I'm currently watching. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then the last question I have for you is what is next for you? Any goals or plans for 2022 that you're excited about? My next project is um, an album okay. uh, and I have started it uh, loosely. I will say I, st- I have started it. I- I'm in what I like to call pre-production, which is where I'm kind of coming up with what I think will be the palette of sounds that I want to use um, and working on, you know, melodies that I think will make it into uh, into the final product. Uh, and as far as goals, I think the main one kind of touched on already. And that's, I think, to become more of an artist, like in the fact that, you know, I'm divorcing myself from the the more digital aspect of creating music and trying to get back into the love of the actual, you know, playing it in real time. And I think that's a goal for me this year is to kind of maybe get back to more of those roots than I've, than I've had, you know, over the past decade or so. That's beautiful. I have, I have a question for you that I'd like to ask. What, what is something that you think you would be doing if music was in your profession? Probably something really, you know, menial, like, uh, like I was a, um, I was a paralegal for six years before this current career took off. And, um, I, you know, I toyed with the idea of going to law school. I took the LSAT and, um, but I didn't, I, I, I hated it. You know, like when I, I took the job as a paralegal to to kind of see, okay, well, is this a career that I want, you know, mm-hmm. in the legal field? And uh, I mean, I, I'm glad I did it because I learned a lot. And now, you know, like anytime I get a contract, I know how to read it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I think that's important, you know, as, as a uh, business, but, you know, I just like dreaded going to work every day, you know? And uh, so I, I don't know. I, I would like to think I would be an entrepreneur of some sort, but I, I specifically what I would be doing, I don't know. I, I think I probably would not be very happy doing it, though, because this I think is what I if there is such a thing as, as being meant to do something, I think this is as close as I can get. Yeah, I, I, I fully believe that everyone's meant to do something, you know, and if you're unhappy, then that's the most surefire way to know that you're either not on the right track or you're at least, you know, having to do what you need to do to get to that. So, you know, I yeah. I think you're what you're doing now is definitely what you're meant to be doing. So, yeah. And, you know, and, and I think a lot of times people think of their dream job as something that, you know, every day will be magical, but I mean, there, there are days that I don't want to do this, you know, like, uh, or I'll, you know, like going back to that film, the film score, um, you know, writing 80 plus minutes of music in a few weeks and having to do the mixing and mastering and, you know, writing and recording it, it just, it's, you know, it becomes tiresome like any other job, but at the end of the day, you know, I'd, I'd rather be um, doing this than anything else. Totally. Yeah, you got to enjoy the doing. It's not about the outcome and finding what, what you were meant to do is more about finding what clicks when you're doing it, forgetting about what, what's at the end. Yeah. You realize, you know, that every moment could be a good moment or a bad moment, but uh, you know, over the long arc of time, you're, you're doing something that on the, on the whole makes you feel more positive and and less dread about doing it than, you know, something else would. Yeah. I mean, and there are purely physical jobs that 
also meet that for a lot of people, you know, myself included at points in my life where there are some kinds of things that, you know, it's making music is, is a craft in the way that if you, if it's really right for you, that fixing or building a car is a craft. It, it can have that same internal poetry happening at the same time, uh, depending on what you do. I mean, it's like, I guess a simpler way of putting it, if if you almost drop into the zone, if you get into the zone when you're doing your job and you and you lose track of time and you just feel it kind of fill you up in what you're doing, at the very least, that's that you're, you know, that's you're tapping into that. And that could be, I think that's really what it's all about. You feel it yeah. when you're doing something that is right for you. Yes. If you have days, which I've had many of these days where, you know, you start something and then you realize 12 hours later you haven't eaten, you know, yeah. and you just uh, really have completely lost all concept of, of time and, and or your surroundings. And I think, you know, you're probably on the right track. And I, yeah. I do. There's something about music, you know, Nathan, Nathan um, you ask about hobbies. I forgot, like one of my one of the things I love to do is woodworking and okay. um and I think there's something about that, you know, like the idea of you're you're taking individual components and building something with them, you know, and that maybe that even ties into the to the Lego hobby. I think there's something related to music, you know, in in music like that, you know, where you you're taking these disparate ideas or sounds and then merging them into something that's a more cohesive whole. I wonder if that's something inherent in a lot of musicians. Is I think so. Just that that innate will to create something. Yeah. can can just somehow attach itself to other yeah. other things whether it's you know cooking or you know any sort of other skill where you know you're learning the fundamentals and putting stuff together and you know it's just like once you kind of have that it's very easy to apply that to other different yeah. fields so if if you're one of those people that you just like to broaden your horizons you'll probably find all kinds of other hobbies that are very related yeah they can use the same muscles in your brain the you know when you're working on different tasks, I guess. Exactly. And with the Lego thing, you know, one of one of the guys I follow, he says, if you make money and work with your mind, then you should find a way to rest with your hands. And so like, that's, you know, for me, that's like woodworking and, and just like doing any sort of craft where you're, you know, using your hands, you're cutting things. That is like a way to relax and rest. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, well, I think that wraps it up here. Thanks so much for coming on, Blake. This was awesome. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. It was fun hanging out with you guys and finally kind of meet you in person. 